0: If you're familiar with the name Oswald Chambers, it would be likely because of his daily devotional book titled, My Utmost for His Highest. And if you aren't familiar with that name, no surprise. Uh, J.R. Oswald Chambers, he was not a particularly well-known or famous individual. In fact, during his life, he lived in relative obscurity. There was nothing remarkable per se about his life. He, he was a minister. He was a pastor. He, he did found a small school for the sake of training individuals for the mission field. But there was nothing particular about his life that, that would have struck us, that we would have said, wow, this was an incredible man of God. Like he, he was not a well-sought-after speaker. He was not a well-known author, but rather just a, a faithful man laboring on for the gospel. He died at an early age, the age of 43, during World War I, where he served as a chaplain. It was during the war that he had a a bout with appendicitis. He initially refused to go to the hospital because he did not want to take up a hospital bed that might be needed for a wounded soldier. But eventually the, the pain became so significant, he became so ill from the appendicitis, that he had to go in, had to have an emergency appendectomy, and he eventually died a month later, from complications from the surgery. Chambers' life was a short one, and we likely would know absolutely nothing about him whatsoever if it were not for his wife. After his death, his wife, who diligently took notes from all of his sermons and lectures, ended up publishing a total of 30 books that were collected and compiled from his sermons And And the well the most well known of these is the one I mentioned earlier, My Utmost for His Highest, a daily devotional book arranged from different sermons and lectures into a daily devotional format. First published in 1927, it has never been out of print. You can still buy this book today. And it has been acclaimed as being the best-selling and most beloved daily devotional book of all time, with over thirteen million copies sold. The title is taken from a quote from one of his sermons within the book, and the quote is, shut out every consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only, my utmost for his highest. Though Chambers lived a short life, those who knew him testified to the fact that Chambers himself, Oswald Chambers, sought to live out this, that little phrase, that sentence. He sought to live that out in his own life. My utmost for his highest. He was a man who the knowledge of him would be lost to history if it was not for his wife. He labored on in obscurity, never well known within his life. For every... Oswald Chambers that are out there that eventually we know of his name today because of the books that were published. There are countless other men and women throughout history who labored on in obscurity, faithfully seeking to live out my utmost for his highest. That line came from that sermon from Chambers as he was preaching on the text that we are going to examine today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be down in, in verse 19, or really verse 18, the, the, uh, the last part of verse 18. But Chambers strove to live to honor Christ. And he took for his inspiration the, the words of the Apostle Paul, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We've been working through this book, and we're going to continue on to do so, Read with me Philippians chapter 1, beginning at the the last part of verse 18, where Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with the full courage, now as always, Christ is, will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul set, to, set out to live a life of, that would glorify God, that would bring honor and praise to God, that would magnify the name of Jesus Christ. So as we study this, we will see today that Christ is magnified when we live for Him, regardless of... Of the earthly outcome. Christ is magnified when we live for Him regardless of the earthly outcome or present trial. How is this accomplished? How is it that that Christ is magnified in our lives? Well, in this passage, we see three things. First, we see that it is accomplished through the Spirit's work, then, it is accomplished regardless of the earthly results. And it is accomplished as we work to bless others as we live for Christ. First, it is accomplished through the Spirit's work. The the second part of verse 18 there where Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul has been explaining on about how he is rejoicing that the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed even by those who would seek to cause harm to Paul, even though they sought to diminish Paul's ministry as they sought to elevate themselves. Paul says, you know, I'm going to rejoice because it's not about me. Excuse me. It's not about me. It's about the gospel of Christ. And so I will rejoice in that. And then he says again, yes, and I will rejoice. And I believe that that last phrase, yes, and I will rejoice, goes with the paragraph that follows. Many of your Bibles may lay it out that way with the paragraph breaks that that might be in your Bible. But Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. And then he explains, he goes on to explain why he is rejoicing. Why he continues to rejoice even in the midst of his present trial. Because once again, the theme of this letter is one of joy. It is one of joy and rejoicing even as Paul is in jail, even as he is suffering for his faith, and even as those he is writing to They are suffering for their faith. Paul still has this theme of joy. So he says, I will rejoice, and then he explains why. Because I know, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So as Paul is is rejoicing in the circumstances, he he says that my, my circumstances have actually resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. And now he goes on to say that I know that through your prayers, the prayers of the Philippians and, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that there is a particular result that will come of this. First, I want us to see that, that prayers make a difference. Paul identifies that, that our prayers make a difference. I don't know what, what your prayer lives look like. Is personally in your individual lives and I don't know if you've ever wrestled in prayer and, and just questioned amongst yourself just even in your own heart if is this even doing any good like am, am my prayers actually accomplishing anything maybe you pray and you just feel like sometimes that is God listening does God hear my petition before him well, we would do well to seek out a, a biblical understanding of of what prayer is and what prayer accomplishes. See, prayer is not just some kind of, like, like a cosmic vending machine where if we just put the right input in, then we'll just get out whatever it is that we're asking for. Right, that's not how prayer works. Prayer is not as if we're talking to a genie, and, grant, and God is a genie granting wishes to us, whatever it is that our heart desires. That is not the purpose of prayer. The concept of name it and claim it is not a biblical one, and Paul himself was denied his own prayers, as we could read about that, and as he was asking God to end some affliction that he was experiencing in his life, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So God can and does indeed say no. No. So what then is the purpose of prayer? Why, why would we pray? What, what is the purpose of this? Well, if we were to take the time to trace out the concept of prayer through the Scriptures, we would find that, that God is a sovereign God. He is in control, and He does whatever He pleases. As a result, the question might be raised, okay, if God is sovereign, if God is in control, then why should we pray? If God's going to do what God's going to do, why shouldn't we engage in prayer? The answer to this is that God is is not merely sovereign over the ends, over the results, but God is also sovereign over the means, over the, the process that brings about the results. And he has designed to accomplish his prayers, or he has designed to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people. God has designed to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people. And I hope that's encouraging. I hope that's encouraging to us because as we, as we wrestle in prayer, as, as we pray, we can be confident that our prayers really do make a difference because God has designed it to be that way. And he is sovereign over these things, but he is designed to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people. And so Paul says here that, that he is confident of a particular result in his own life because the Philippians Are praying for him. So we recognize that it is important that we should be a people of prayer, that we should be praying for one another. Paul rejoiced over the prayers of the church, and even as I stand before you today, I I would ask that you would be praying for me. Pray for me in my life. Pray that I would be a, a godly man, a faithful father, a faithful husband to my family. Pray that I myself would be a man of prayer. Pray that I would be faithful as I seek to study God's word, that I would rightly divide the word of truth. I ask that you would pray that for me in my own life. But Paul rejoiced. Paul rejoiced that the church was praying for him and God was using those prayers for a particular purpose. The Spirit of God was working through those prayers. Do so we see that not only does Paul says I'm confident because of, of your prayers, but he also says because of the work of the Holy Spirit or the help of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says that there's the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, your translation might say the provision or the supply of the Spirit. There's different ways that that can be translated, and I actually rather prefer that translation of the provision or the supply of the Spirit. See, as Paul is talking, that, that word for supply, that word for provision, it, it carries that, the idea of, of something that fills in what was lacking. So when Paul says that through the provision of the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit is supplying, he is providing what is lacking in the life of Paul. And Paul could say that, and as we look at this, it's, we could ask the question, okay, as, as this is worded through the, through the grammar of the sentence, is the Holy Spirit providing additional help in different ways, additional provision in different ways? Or we could say that the Spirit himself is the provision. I believe that that is actually what Paul is seeking to communicate here, that the provision is the Spirit of Christ. I think of the book of Luke, verse 11 through, uh, chapter 11, verse 13, when Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God says if we ask for the Spirit, it will be given it to us. Not in the sense of like the the second blessing sense of the Spirit that some groups teach theologically, but but that the Spirit helps us and and, and, and provides for us His help. Ephesians chapter 8 verse 18 says that we should be filled with the Spirit's. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says that we should walk with the Spirit in order that we might not gratify the deeds or the desires of the flesh. So it is the provision of the Spirit that, that helps us, strengthens us as we labor on in this life. And we need the help of the Spirit. All right, this is an inescapable reality. We are incapable of. Of living a life that is honoring to Christ apart from the Spirit who works within us. We are incapable of living a life honoring to Christ apart from the work of the Spirit within us. And I don't know about you, but I've tried. (laughs) I've tried. You know, and this is always evident within my life when the, the times where I am tre- seeking to live out a life in my own strength, trying to accomplish these things in my own strength, and I can testify in my own life that it does not work out too well. Right? I, I can't overcome sin on my own. I can't walk in a consistent obedience to God on my own. It just, it does not work out that way. I cannot bear fruit apart from the work of the spirits. And it's always obvious When I'm trying to do that, because as I reflect and I examine upon my own life, the times where I am seeking to to live out the Christian life in my own strength, those are the times where I am neglecting the spiritual disciplines of of prayer and personal Bible study and, and fellowship with God's people. See, God has has worked these things out in our lives. God has provided for us these disciplines for us, for the Spirit of God to be working within us. He works through His Word. The Spirit of God works through His people coming together and iron sharpening iron as we gather together. And He works through prayer, not only as we, we ask our requests of the Lord, but as we wrestle with the Lord in prayer, as we spend time communing with Him. He molds us and shapes us and brings our desires into conformity with His will. So if we were to neglect these disciplines, that is a sure sign that we are attempting to work in our own power, in our own strength. Neglecting that which God has given to us for our growth. The scriptures say in Second in, in, uh, Corinthians, that if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So we need the Spirit to be working within us. And Paul recognized that fact. And here he expresses his confidence that the Spirit of God was going to accomplish something within his life. So what, it is, that, what, is, it, what is it that is the result of the prayers and of the, the working of the Spirit of God in the midst of this circumstance? He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus that this will turn out for my deliverance for my deliverance now you're gonna have to bear with me for a few moments because i'm gonna just wrestle through something with you all here today there's there's a difficult phrase here in this verse and i just want to wrestle through this and just kind of provide the the main ideas that are out there on this verse and and there's a reason why i'm wrestling through this with you today so just bear with me as we work through this the word here, deliverance, I am reading from the ESV this morning. It's also in the NASB, the word deliverance. But that word is also translated as salvation in the CSB or the, or the King James. So we have to ask the question, what is Paul talking about here? And why are there these different translations in our different translations? Why, why is it rendered differently? The issue is that the word that Paul uses here, is the word that we would typically translate as salvation, and we would understand that in the sense that we're used to thinking about that word. Salvation from our sins, salvation unto eternal life. Therefore, as a result of that, there are some scholars that think that Paul is thinking about his final salvation, that when he dies, he knows he will be ultimately saved, that he is kept in the hand of God, that he does not have to fear death, that he does not have to fear eternal torment in hell. But there is a problem with this understanding, and the the problem with that is that in the context, Paul is placing a high emphasis on his current circumstances that are leading him to that point of salvation, or that point of deliverance, depending on how it is translated. But we know that Paul, having placed his faith and his trust in Christ, is guaranteed his salvation. Regardless of his current circumstances. So I, I, I wrestle with that, and I, I do not think that, that Paul is referring to his eternal salvation in this passage. A second option is that Paul means to communicate the idea of deliverance, and that's why some translations use that word, deliverance. And so there are some that, be, that believe that through the prayers of the people and through the work of the Spirit, Paul expects to be set free from prison. And so it's the idea of deliverance. Though we often attach a theological significance to the word salvation, the Greek word itself, irrespective of context, does not inherently carry that theological concept on its own. But the word has been used in different contexts to communicate different ideas. So we have to ask the question, saved, saved from what? Delivered, delivered from what? In most places in the New Testament, the context is that of eternal salvation, saved from our sins, saved unto eternal life. But there are places where the deliverance does refer to some some temporal peril, some present crisis, some, some affliction in the moment, and it speaks of a deliverance in time from that peril. And so there are some that believe that that is what Paul refers to here that he that Paul means to communicate that he will be released from a prison, and thus this statement that he will be delivered. This understanding is further supported by Paul's being seemingly confident of his own release down in verse twenty-six, when he says that he expects to come to the Philippians. But I think there is a problem with this understanding as well, and it is this: we must ask the question. Okay, Paul is in prison. I believe he is writing from Rome. Well, on what basis did he believe that he would be released? Paul received no direct revelation from God, stating, don't worry, Paul, you will be released. He, there is no record of that, that he received that communication. Furthermore, why is Paul, if Paul is so confident in his own release, why does he speak so much about the possibility of death that would result from his current trial that he is facing is that he's going to stand on trial he's going to stand in court why does he speak so much about his death if he is speaking about being freed from prison how could paul have been so mistaken and have such mis- seemingly misplaced confidence he kind of presents the result here that this, this will result in my deliverance, and it is he goes on to say that this is my eager expectation and hope, and as we'll talk about in the moment, in a moment that that word hope doesn't communicate something iffy; it communicates a surety, a confidence. Why was Paul express such confidence? He he presents this as a done deal. He says, "I know that this will lead to my deliverance," when in fact. It will not lead to his deliverance. But historically, we find that Paul actually ends up being executed by the Roman government. So there are difficulties with that understanding. But there is a third possible interpretation, and it is this, that Paul himself defines what he means by deliverance right here in the passage itself. And it is not a salvation in Christ Referring to eternal salvation. And it is not release from prison, but rather that he will be delivered from shame and will honor Christ in his life or in his death. Notice the first words of verse 20 where it says, As it is my eager expectation, or your translation might say according to. Those words connect those two phrases together. Paul is communicating the idea that, that this, this expectation, this hope that he has, it is connected with this idea of deliverance, and his confidence, his expectation, his hope is that he will not be brought to shame, but that his life will bring honor to pray and praise to Christ. So thus, the idea of deliverance is that he will be delivered from shame and that Christ will be honored. and. This, is the, this third position is, that's what I take. That's what I think Paul is referring to, that, that he defines what this deliverance is himself right here in this passage. Now, why did I work that through with you? <laughs> why did I go through, though, the, the different options, the different interpretations that are available? Why, why did I do that? Well, I did so because I want you to see the importance of looking at the context when we're working through any passage of Scripture. You know, it's easy to make the mistake of looking at an individual word, ripping it out of its context, maybe even looking that word up in a, in a lexicon or a Greek dictionary and saying, okay, this is what that word means, and then we insert the, a meaning back into the text when the context would indicate that that word actually is communicating something else in its context. And So I want us to understand that words have meaning in context. And that is a critical thing for us to understand. It's a fundamental and basic principle of Bible study, of of even just understanding everyday language. If I were to speak of a trunk, what am I talking about? There's what linguists call a semantic range of meaning with that word. I could be talking about a tree, a tree trunk, could be talking about an elephant, could be talking about swimming trunks, could be talking about a suitcase. You know, there's a whole host of things. I could be talking about a car trunk. You know, so there's a whole range of possibilities. It's not until I use that word in a context that we begin to understand what is communicated there. And so as, as we do Bible study, as we work through passages of Scripture, we need to key in on that. So when Paul says that this is going to result in my deliverance, we don't want to import meaning to a word that the context is actually defining for us what the Word is communicating. And so that is the case here. Let's return to Paul's uh, flow of thought here. He says that, that I think your, your, I believe your prayers, I'm confident that, that your prayers and the work of the Spirit will result in my deliverance. That will result in what he defines here in verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So the Spirit is at work. The Spirit of God is working in the midst of the prayers of the people of the Philippians to bring about this result, bolstering Paul's confidence and working in his heart, giving him that confidence that that he is not going to be ashamed, even if he is executed. He will not be brought to shame, but rather Christ will be honored and will be glorified. You know, I spoke a little bit last week about the concept of of the culture at that time being an, an honor shame culture, and that it, the, the the concept of shame it was very prevalent in the communities there. And that it was very important that the that, that, that people be honoring you and, in your face and just uh, that you would not be ashamed of anything, that there be nothing that brought, would bring shame upon your head. And Paul says, I'm not worried about that. I've been delivered from that. I'm not worried. I will not be ashamed. But Christ will be honored. Typically being executed as a criminal would be bringing shame upon yourself and shame upon your family. But Paul says, no, Christ will be honored. Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. And so the Spirit's work here brings about a proper perspective. The Spirit's work brings about a proper perspective in the life of Paul that, that again, it's not about him, it's not about Paul as an individual, but it's about Jesus Christ. And Christ will be honored. Paul says his conscience is clear. I'm not worried about what the trial will reveal. There's nothing in my actions that will bring shame upon my head. I am confident in Christ that he will be honored and glorified. Whether I'm released and I go on living in the flesh, or whether or not I am executed for my faith. So he has that proper perspective. The idea of Christ being honored, it speaks of magnifying Christ. We could translate it as, Christ will be praised as great. Christ will be glorified, magnified, praised. Paul lived for the glory of Christ. My utmost for His highest. So the Spirit was at work. The glory of Christ is accomplished through the work of the Spirit. Second, it is accomplished regardless of earthly result. Look with me at verses 21 through 24. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for you. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, Paul identifies these, these two possibilities that could result in his life in the immediate sense. He could live on in the flesh, and he says, Yep, that's Christ. He says, That's fruitful labor. That's, that's necessary even for your benefits. But he also says, To die, that's gain. I get to be with Christ, that's far better. I could be with Christ for all eternity, seeing Him, praising Him, beholding His glory. That would be so much better. Not having to endure the trials of this present life. Just for the believer, dying is gain. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to worry about where we will be. If we've repented of our sin and placed our trust in Christ alone, death is gain. There's... There's a new song that was written a couple of years ago called, It Is Not Death to Die. You might look that up at some point. It Is Not Death to Die, for those who are God's children. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. That's what Paul says here. Death is far better at this point because I am in Christ. Sometimes I think, though, that when we're thinking about this passage, this passage is quoted at different points sometimes in conversations i think sometimes that we lose a little bit of the balance that paul is bringing to the table here sometimes the emphasis gets placed upon the aspect of you have to die that's gained that would be far far better and and we exalt that aspect of things and, and and so paul says it he says it's better so we emphasize that aspect and so we speak about okay our death is As if it's an easy choice. Like if we were presented, well, whether we live or whether we die, hey, I'm going to to choose death. You know, that's far better. Paul says that's better. To die is gain. I'm going to be with Christ. Yes, bring it on. Let's get out of here. Let's go. So that that emphasis and that focus begins to be there. But in doing so, I, I think we may fail to see this genuine dilemma that Paul seems to be wrestling with. It's not an easy choice for Paul. He acknowledges that, yeah, it would be better to depart and be with Christ. But he doesn't present it as if, so I'm going to choose that, no questions asked. No, he wrestles with it. He says, yet which I shall choose? I can't tell. Like, it's too hard to pick. I, I'm wrestling with this. Yeah, to depart, it, that would be better. But to be here, to be with you all, he says, that would mean fruitful labor. He says this, I I want to live for your benefits. He says, but to remain in the flesh, that's more necessary on your account. So Paul seems to actually be be stressing the aspect of of his present life here while he lives on in the flesh. He acknowledges the the greatness of what it would be to, to depart and be with Christ. But the emphasis really does seem to be upon the present life And blessing others while he lives on here on this earth. And so I want to challenge with this, I want to challenge us with this. Do we have an escapist mentality that just looks forward to the the return of Christ, that looks forward to, to our death? And praise God, Jesus Christ is coming back. I don't want to take away from that. Praise God, we do want to look forward. Paul says himself, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. John says in the book of Revelation, Lord, come, we, we do want to embrace that and look forward to the return of Christ. But we should not have an escapist mentality that causes us to look so much forward to that day that we neglect the present benefit that we can be to others here and now. Paul acknowledges, yes, to depart and be with Christ, that would be far better. But to live as Christ... I can glorify God in my body today because I can live for Christ and I can be a blessing to others. It's more necessary for others, he says. It's fruitful labor to be here and to minister among you all. And so we need to restore a balance in our thinking in this area. Christ is to be honored in our lives presently today, whether we live or whether we die. So we acknowledge that the potential death we acknowledge that that indeed would be better, but we also recognize that as I sim living out my life here, I live to encourage, to minister, and to bless others. and And that is the third and final point this morning: that it, that Paul, that Christ, is honored and glorified through blessing others. We find this in verses twenty five and twenty six. As we close here today, Paul says, "Convinced of this, I know." that I will remain and and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You know, it does seem to be that that Paul does seem to think that he is going to be released. We know historically that that did not end up being the case, that Paul ended up being in prison up to the point of death and being executed by the Roman officials. But here he identifies that as long as he does live, as long as he is here, that that these are the things that he is going to labor for. These are the things that he is going to work for, for the benefit and the blessing of others. He says he's going to work for their progress of faith. He wants to see them progress in the faith, to advance, to grow in maturity. Colossians 1 comes to mind to me where Paul says that we proclaim Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, that's what I'm working towards. I want you to progress in the faith. He wanted them to mature. Not only that, but he wants them to increase in joy in the faith. The two ideas are connected. When we progress in the faith, we also progress in our joy and again there's that concept of joy. like we're, Paul is sitting in prison. The, the church he's writing to is being persecuted for their faith and yet Paul desires to work to, to bless them that they might have joy in the faith. So he wants them to be joyful and finally he wants them to glory or to boast in Christ. Last verse, verse 26, says this, "...so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus for my coming to you again." Now, the Greek construction is difficult in this verse as well, and as a result, I did not read two trans. I, I consulted multiple translations in the midst of this, and not two of them translated it the same way across any translation. So it is difficult, but no matter how it is translated, the emphasis is on the Philippians glorying in or boasting in Christ. Paul says, if I am to remain in the flesh, I will do so, so that you may glory in Christ, that you may rejoice in Christ, that you may boast in Jesus Christ. So again, Paul takes the emphasis upon himself, and he turns it to the Lord. He says, you're not going to boast and glory in me, but rather you will boast and glory in Christ, over what Christ does, rejoice over God's actions. And so our presence with others, Paul says, if I'm to live here on in the flesh, live here in the body, I want to do so for your progress of faith, for your joy in the faith, and so that Christ may be glorified through my presence here with you. And so as, as we consider that ourselves, Do our presence in the lives of others lead them to glory in Christ? That's what Paul labored for. And that's how we ought to be approaching. What does a life lived to honor Christ look like? Paul expresses it here. It is a life that is lived for the glory of Christ, my utmost for His highest, accomplished through the Spirit's work. Is accomplished regardless of earthly results, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and it is accomplished as we live to bless others, working for their progress and joy in the faith for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your Son Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we have this example in the Apostle Paul, recognizing that, that he could not live even for for the glory of Christ on his own, but he needed the Holy Spirit's work within his life, I thank you and I praise you for that. Because, Lord, we know that we ourselves, we are incapable to live for your honor and glory on our own. We need the Spirit of Christ working in our hearts and in our lives as well. I pray that you would accomplish that in our lives. I pray that we would be faithful to live for you. We need your grace, Lord. It's not something that we can accomplish on our own. Help us to rest in the gospel of Christ and what it provides for us. And may you truly be honored and glorified. May we be able to say that Christ will be honored in our body, whether in life or in death. My utmost for his highest. I pray that that would be accomplished in our hearts and in our lives today. I pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.